Let's pray. Lord, come upon us tonight that we might understand your word, that we might understand the things within our own hearts, that we might understand the struggle that we have with sin, the dangers that lurk there, but also the strength and forgiveness that is available through you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 26, now begin in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? They weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand and I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. This is God's inspired word for us tonight. The first thing that we find in this chapter, verses 14 through 16, really hit us right out of the blue. There's not much preparation for the words that Matthew gives to us dealing with Judas. Really, there's hardly any mention of Judas anywhere in Matthew other than this place and in chapter 10 of Matthew where he does just go through the list of the disciples and when he comes to Judas he says Judas Iscariot who betrayed him so Matthew is obviously writing his gospel after all these events have happened and he inserts that early in chapter 10 but if you're not paying attention to it you really don't understand what is involved here Matthew has told us nothing leading us to believe that this man could be capable of the type of wickedness that we know is manifest in his life on that night. He hasn't told us anything that would lead us to believe that Judas is even planning this type of act of betrayal. And by the way, the same thing is true in Mark and Luke. There's just no evidence that they prepare us for these words and these plans of Judas. Furthermore, Matthew does not directly supply us with any motive for Judas, uh, for why he did this. Now, there are possibly quite a large number of reasons why he did this. But remember, none of the disciples had the chance to go and talk to Judas afterwards. Because after this betrayal, after all that went on, Judas went out and, and he hung himself. Now, he felt overwhelmed with remorse. He did not feel overwhelmed and repent. He felt overwhelmed with remorse, and this guilt led him to kill himself. Now, there have been books, a lot of books written about, um, with an attempt to understand what was going on in Judas's mind and his motivations, and we do know one thing for certain. What Judas did is a permanent reminder to us that it is a terrible thing to seek an opportunity to sin. It is a terrible thing to seek an opportunity to sin, to plan your sin, to prepare yourself and your life to be involved in sin, to carefully seek out a time and an opportunity and an event in which you can rebel against God's law and God's desires. That's why the psalmist says to protect me, Lord, from presumptuous sins, 
the sins that I know I'm going to go and commit, but I can trust the Lord to forgive me, right? Oh, he'll forgive me. He's gracious. It says in his word, he is faithful to forgive if I repent. Is he faithful to forgive if I purposely go and pursue sin? We must never, ever take the attitude that, oh, I can go ahead and plan out and do my sin because I can always repent later, right? Because repentance is really a grace that is given to us. Repentance is a grace that is given to us. Who are we to say that we'll have the grace of repentance when it comes time to it? After I have willingly and knowingly pursued and planned out this sin, who is to say that that I'll have the right mind that I will seek to repent of this? Who is to say that, that I might not love that sin so much that I would just simply keep living in it and repeating it and pursuing it habitually, purposefully, again and again and again? Who are we to say that once we have pursued something we know to be wrong, we'll have the understanding or the maturity or the depth to seek repentance and to turn away and to seek the Lord's forgiveness for those things? Judas goes to the enemies of Jesus and offers to help them entrap Jesus, the Son of God. And he agrees to do this for 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold his master very, very cheaply. I'm reminded of Psalm 41 where it says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It seems to me that this whole passage is a reminder to us of the dangers of purposely pursuing sin. Now this sin, the one that Judas is guilty of, is the most spectacular sin ever committed. And it involves the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The brutal murder of the perfect Son of God. And and really the most despicable act in the midst of this sin is the betrayal of of a friend of Jesus. Now we know that Judas was one of the apostles that Jesus had personally chosen and who had been with Jesus during his entire public ministry. He had been entrusted with the money bag for the whole group. That's We see that. John talks about that in his gospel. He was close enough to Jesus at the Last Supper to be dipping bread in the same cup that Jesus used. But even with all of this, it seems that Judas followed Jesus Maybe just for what he could get out of Jesus. But when Judas finds that the kingdom Jesus talks about will not profit him materially, maybe even cost him his life, and, and will not be aimed at the overthrow of those who oppress Judas' people, the Jews, the overthrow of the Romans, then he chooses to betray him, as I said, for very cheaply, the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Judas is all about the exercise of his own will, and has turned from relying upon the will of Christ. For three years he has followed Christ and done what he said, and now he has finally said, this is my will, I'm going to exercise my will on this night. Judas abandoned his spiritual birthright, and in saving his own life, he's lost it for all eternity. Judas represents all those who follow Jesus only for what they can get from him. Not for how they can serve him. Eventually, they may decide that the cost of serving him is more than they're willing to give up. Now, let's remember the scene that night. The gathering of Jesus and his disciples is rooted in the Old Testament. Just at the end of that passage, 
It says, go into a city and a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and they were saved by the Passover lamb. You you know the story. You know the setting. The plagues have come upon Egypt, and the Pharaoh uh, refuses to let Israel go. And the final plague is the one where the angel of death comes and will kill the firstborn of every household unless the blood of a lamb is placed upon the lentil, upon the doorposts. And there was the Passover lamb, so that the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would cause the angel of death to pass over the people of Israel. The angel of death visited Egypt and destroyed the firstborn of every house, but the people of Israel were spared, saved by the blood of the lamb. The exodus, the miraculous escape from Egypt across the Red Sea, made possible by the blood of the Passover lamb. And here is Jesus on the night on which for almost 1,500 years his people have gathered to celebrate that particular event. And he's getting ready to sit down and eat this meal with his disciples. And this is the night which he tells them what? He says, I'm that lamb. I am that lamb by whose blood men can be saved. This will be the night that he institutes the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate in a few moments. This will be the night when he, in greater detail than he has ever done before, lays out the events that will happen. He has told them previously, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to give up my life, and they have not understood it. This will be the night when he is betrayed, not just by some disgruntled Pharisee, but by a close friend, one of his own disciples. And he already knows who it is. This is a night for betrayal, And then tomorrow, he'll die for the sins of the world. I think, in my own mind, I'm trying to look at at Judas. And I think that perhaps for maybe weeks or even months, Judas has been allowing some sort of sin to eat away at him like a cancer. Maybe in the mind of Judas, he never thought it would come to this. Maybe he thought he could talk Jesus out of this. Maybe he thought he could talk Jesus into being the... The, the, the really radical individual that maybe Judas thought he should be and overthrow the Romans. Maybe Judas just couldn't wait any longer. So he goes to the Sanhedrin who are plotting to arrest Jesus, but they can't find the right time because they can't go and arrest him during the daytime for fear that there would be a riot. And Judas says, I've got the plan. I know just how to do it. In the darkness, at Gethsemane, I'll point him out to you. And there you can take him. And Judas thinks that after that he'll go about the rest of his life. But the secret sin in Judas's life is about to take control of him. The secret sin that had driven him to think the unimaginable, not just to walk away from Jesus, but to betray him. Satan has a hold of Judas. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and thirty. It doesn't seem worth it, giving him over now. 
What can you change, even when threatened? I wonder. If he came to the point of calling down the crowds to save himself, would he do it? Will he establish the kingdom at last? For some reason, I don't think so. Suppose, just suppose I didn't go to them tonight. They are waiting, and they've probably secured the Roman cohort by now. They'll arrest him, beat him, and publicly humiliate him. That should break through to him. There have been so many opportunities missed, so many times when, why, just a week ago, he was surrounded by the throngs, shouting and waving palm branches. He could have rallied a riot and taken Jerusalem, but he let it go. Could this be part of a plan? Oh, this man is so confusing. There are times when I'm sure he knows the consequences of every word, every step, every wink of an eye, and others, when he just seems to be blindly stumbling toward destiny. What is it? What gives him such assurance and yet seemingly compliance? He always seems to be manipulated by the crowds rather than the other way around. (laughs) The kingdom. The kingdom is just a heartbeat away, and I know he knows it. It can be established with just the simple smile on his lips. He heals the blind, the lame, the weary heart of the dirty common man. But he acts as if he doesn't regard his power as his own. Well, this moment is mine. Betrayal? It may seem. But when the kingdom comes, my will will be found at his foundation. It's nighttime now. It's time to go. Where was God when this happened? Where was God in this betrayal of Jesus Christ? All that counts in the answer to that question is what God says about it. It doesn't count what I think. It doesn't count what I think God should have done or what he could have done. It counts what God says he did. From all the prophecies written about the death of Christ in the Old Testament, we know that God foresaw and planned that his son would be rejected and hated and abandoned and betrayed and denied and condemned and spit upon and flocked and flogged and mocked and pierced, and he would give his life. And all these are explicitly in God's mind before they happened because he had planned it all out. All of them were evil. It is sin to reject Christ, to hate him, to abandon, to betray, to deny, condemn, and to kill the morally perfect, infinitely worthy, divine Son of our Heavenly Father. And yet the Bible is explicit that God himself planned these things. 
It is explicit, not only in all the prophetic texts, as I said, there are many, but also in the passages that say even more plainly that God brought these things to pass. Isaiah 53, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. Luke talks about it in the fourth chapter of Acts with the clearest, the most explicit statement about God's part in this. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Before the foundations of the earth, when there was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, this was the plan. That the salvation of God's created beings, that would be us. The salvation of those who belong to him would be accomplished through the suffering and the death of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is what it took to cover the sins of us. You you think, could he have done it another way? That's a question that we ask. But he explains that to us. No, this was my plan. There was no other way that the Lord, from the beginning of time, from the foundation, before the foundations of the earth, there was no other way that he deemed it would happen except this way, by the suffering and death of the perfect Son of God. Judas is an example to us of what may befall any of us. Because within each of us, there is this little bit of Judas. There is this sinfulness that even as believers still remains. It is a warning to us. Do you purposely and habitually pursue sin? Do you presume upon the grace of our Heavenly Father that I can go and do these things and He will forgive me? It is a terrible danger to do that. Our struggle with loyalty to Christ is a little bit different than Judas's. He made a, he followed Christ. He was there and saw all of those things happen, yet his heart was never changed by Christ's grace. For those of us who are believers, our hearts have been changed. We have a different type of struggle than Judas did, a, a practical struggle. We say that we trust Him alone for our salvation. We say that He is our Lord, Lord and Master of our lives, yet we are tempted at times to deliberately do those things that we know that displease Him. And we know ahead of time that we're going to plan to do them, but we go ahead right ahead and do them anyway. Now, I hope that each of us has experienced God's forgiveness and His grace in our lives and in these things, yet that is no reason to be presumptuous upon His grace. Now, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, well, I do that all the time, Rand. What is the state of my heart? You have to ask that question to the Lord. You must look at your own heart and say, Lord, where is your grace in my life? What have you done in my life? Why is it that I struggle with these things so terribly? Lord, I want to pursue you. And I want to know you, and that is all that I want to know. 
And the Lord says, yeah, but you'll still have to battle these things. Until you stand in the presence of our Heavenly Father, and He sees you washed in the blood of Christ, you will struggle with sin. Now, can you overcome it? There is no sin that He does not provide the grace for you to overcome. Judas was lost. Those of us who are in Christ are not going to be lost. It does not mean we will not struggle with those things, with temptation. And my words to you tonight are do not presume upon God's grace. Do not purposely pursue the things that you know he hates. Pursue the things you know he loves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at your word, we see that both Judas and Peter denied you. Yet you prayed for Peter. Judas was lost. He pursued his own desires. He felt remorse but never repented, never turned from those things. He had every opportunity to know the things of Christ. Every opportunity but yet he betrayed Christ. Lord, we see in our own lives that we are given opportunity after opportunity to pursue the things of Christ. Sometimes we simply fail, Lord. Sometimes the flesh is weak. Sometimes we would rather pursue our own desires, have our own way. But, Lord, if you are real in our lives, these things weigh upon us. Lord, we pray that tonight we would not pursue the things that you hate, that we would not pursue the things that are displeasing to you, that, Lord, you would open our eyes to those things in our lives that we have sought after, those attitudes that we have harbored in our hearts, those thoughts in our lives that we continue to nourish and fertilize, that they would grow, those thoughts that are not right, that are inappropriate. Show these things to us on this night, Lord, that we may not presume upon your grace, but that we might flee from those things that we might turn away from those things and seek forgiveness and, and follow the things of Christ and leave those sins behind. Lord, we don't want to know anything else but Christ and Him crucified. We want those thoughts, thoughts on what is right and beautiful and just to pervade our minds and our hearts. Focus our attention on those things tonight, Lord. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to come to the table.